Hey, welcome. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Marketing Mind. On this show, I have a conversation with my friends in marketing. These experts are the best in their fields, and we dive deeper into their career journey. How did they get to this point? What were their hurdles along the way? And, and where are things heading for them? My name is John Ellis. I'm a marketing professional. I've been in the digital marketing space for 20 years. In that time, I've met a lot of great people and experts. Now, you can find me on Twitter every day discussing marketing at, at John W. Ellis. Join the conversation or just ask me any marketing question. If I can't help you, I know an expert who can. Now, we use these episodes to get to know these marketing experts, and often we hear them t- talking about left turns from where their career started, and other times it's a direct route to where they planned on being. And the journey is never the same and always has unexpected bumps along the way. Today, I look inside the marketing mind of Tim Ash from TimAsh.com and PrimalBrain.com. Tim is a digital marketer like myself, but his niche in this space has often been that conversion level. And I'm a big fan of his earlier book of his called Landing Page Optimization. In fact, it's a pretty common book in the digital marketing space. I encourage you to pick it up, even if you're just dabbling in the space. It's sort of required reading for marketing. But Tim Ash has something new out. His latest book is Unleash Your Primal Brain. It's not a marketing book per se, although there are certainly some elements that can be applied to marketing. So my first question to Tim was how this book came about. That's a great question because as you know, I've written a couple of books on landing page optimization or you know conversion rate optimization. They're kind of actually the Bibles in the field, I would say. Um, but this is a very different book for me and I'll, I'll tell you the the story of how it came to be. Um, as you know, I ran a digital agency called Site Tuners. We're focused on optimization. We work with the Nestle's and Facebook's and uh, Siemens of the world and uh, created 1.2 billion in value for them in, in terms of improved website efficiencies. The, the thing is, it, you can't fake that stuff. You know, conversion rate optimization is they show up on your site. Did you persuade more of them to act or didn't you? So we learned in the trenches and uh, it's the stuff that really, really worked. Um, and our clients, for the most part, use this stuff ethically. In other words, they would uh, use it to lower friction, to create better user experiences, to better align messaging and uh, audience fit, that sort of thing, right? But unfortunately, a lot of companies don't do it ethically. There's a lot of companies that, and governments, uh, large corporations and governments that are using it to strip mine us for data, to suck money out of our wallet, to uh, get us to buy their stuff or to create political divisions as we're seeing in, in, in our society and that sort of thing. And, you know, I was born in the uh, former Soviet Union and I, I've seen what, you know, groupthink and mind control and propaganda and manipulation can do. And so when we emigrated to the U.S., I was just a little kid. I was eight, but I, I came here with kind of an outsider sensibility, and I always was sensitive to these kind of techniques for manipulating people. And to my surprise, I mean, throughout my whole life here in the West and the freedom, there's still a lot of this going on. And um, so to me, you know, I, I, like I said, I've applied this to marketing uh, pretty effectively in, in my former agency, Site Tuners, but 
I, this is bigger than marketing. This is about kind of balancing the scales. And, and as individuals, you know, we can't compete with a bunch of behavioral economists or statisticians or, you know, neuromarketing experts that are attacking us. In effect, it's like bringing the proverbial knife to a gunfight. So my attempt with this book is to basically explain how do our brains really work. What's the operating system? What's being human 101? Uh, so we can at least take ourselves into better account. And, and so I'm trying to level the playing field and give us a fair shot as individuals to survive in this increasingly kind of manipulated environment that we live in. Before we kind of dig into the content, one thing that surprised me, because I've known you for a while, you know, she's probably 15, 20 years just as this marketer in this marketing world. But I didn't realize you actually had, I mean, you're just not a marketer doing these things. You actually have this ba- a background in this. What is your, uh, ed- I guess, education in this? Yeah, you know, I came out um, to University of California, San Diego. It was great. They gave me a full ride to UC Regents Academic Scholarship. It's a top research university specializing in the sciences. And it's 3,000 miles from New Jersey where I went to high school. I, and uh, stayed there undergrad and grad school. And my undergrad majors were in computer engineering and cognitive science. Uh, I doubled majored. And cognitive science at the time was in the psych department, uh, but then became its own department. So I guess you could say that, and my, and my graduate work was in uh, neural networks or what you'd call artificial intelligence or deep learning, machine learning, that sort of thing. And w- this was early days. So we're working on the algorithm sides of how do you, how to teach computers to learn by examples and by sifting through data. The problem is there weren't large data sets. Obviously, with the advent of the Internet, uh, huge data sets are not a problem anymore, and so the whole field is really taken off. And so uh, I've always been interested in the brain, and it was uh, in persuasion and cognition, and so I applied it to marketing and, like I said, pretty effectively for, um, since then. But this is kind of coming back full circle to my love affair with uh, explaining how human beings work. So I guess you could say my career in marketing, I, I trained for it in school even though the Internet didn't exist. Internet marketing is like this perfect mix of qualitative and quantitative. On the one hand, you know, everything is infinitely measurable that we do, but on the other hand, it's still, t- there's a, uh, an art and a, more than a science to the psychology and understanding how to influence people in marketing. As a college student going into college, what did, in your mind, what did you envision yourself doing as a quote, a, an adult? <laughs> uh, I remember I came to UCSD and I was talking to the provost during orientation and there was no way I could finish my computer engineering degree in four years. He's like, yeah, you're on the five-year plan. That, by the way, that's when I decided to double major. Uh, but he said, and I was kind of pissed because, you know, I was like, four years. Come on. It's it's a bachelor's degree. Four years. And he's like, nope. Uh, like, don't. That extra year won't matter. You're not here to learn anything in particular. I'm like, what the hell? And, and he said, you're here to learn how to learn. And I think I really took that to heart because... I've been a lifelong learner and I'm, it's, it's about learning something new. So it's not about what you trained in or how you even thought about it. I think most of us, you know, maybe, maybe there's somebody's like, I know I want to be a veterinarian and help animals. Okay. And they know that from the time they're three. 
I wasn't one of those people, and I think most people aren't. Um, and so I think, again, it's just the discipline, the ability to, to learn, to work in groups with others. If it's projects, it's those general kind of um, upgrade yourself throughout your life skills that I, that I most appreciated. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned two things. I mean, you, I guess you were born in Russia or the Russia, Russia. the former Soviet the Union. Former Soviet, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Former yeah. Soviet Union. Country uh, that doesn't even exist anymore. How'd you get to New Jersey? Not, not literally how'd you get here, but. <laughs> well, it's, it's a long and winding road. So I, we left, um, the Soviet Union in the early seventies, 1973. And uh, this was when there was a lot of political pressure being applied uh, by other countries to the Soviet Union for discriminating against Jews and uh, mistreatment of Jews. And there was uh, like people, uh, the famous uh, physicist uh, Sakharov, who won the, the Nobel Prize, he was like on a hunger strike to get the right to leave Russia and that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of political pressure to let Jews out as kind of an oppressed minority. And so my dad was ethnically Jewish. I mean... He, his ancestors lived in Russia for generations, so whatever that means. But literally on his documentation, it would say nationality, Jew. And, you know, my mom was ethnic Russian, so, like, I would have been discriminated against. And that was very much on my my parents' mind, that my little brother and I would have not had opportunities. Like, my dad was a straight-A student in high school, which normally means you go to any university you want, but he wanted to go to an aviation institute, and they didn't take Jews because Jews were a security risk. They didn't want him working in the defense sector at all. And so that's how he ended up being a civil engineer and meeting my mom doing the same thing. But uh, he was like, I don't want my boys to grow up here and to be discriminated against. So as soon as they cracked the door open a little, we're like, we're outie. Um, so we're in Rome, Italy and, um, waiting to figure out where to go. And it was Australia, Canada, U.S. or Israel, of course, that were accepting Soviet Jewish refugees. And my dad calls up his uncle who'd been in the U.S. since the 1920s and was a big business success. So imagine this. My dad calls him up international transatlantic collect call to his Madison Avenue apartment in New York, right? Of course, my great uncle wasn't there, like all good Jews. He's like wintering in Florida. So they transfer the call. They track him down. And my dad's like, hey, Uncle Saul, it's Sasha. You know, we're in Rome and we're thinking of going to Canada. And my uncle says, no, Sasha, come to America. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of everything. And that five-minute collect international call is why I'm an American and not a Canadian, eh? I mean, it's just weird how life turns on that. So we lived in Albany, New York, and then Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is outside of Philadelphia, where I went to high school. And my parents moved around for work. They were both civil engineers and had good second careers here in the U.S. And then then I just sprinted, like I said, for San Diego as soon as I got that scholarship out here. So the scholarship was part part of the reason why you took to Yeah, to yeah, when I when I applied to colleges I got the full range of responses. I got into University of Pennsylvania, which is Ivy League, but we sent busloads of people there and it was in a crappy part of Philadelphia, half an hour from my house, right? I got waiting listed at MIT, but I didn't bother finding out. I got rejected at Princeton because I waddled into my alumnus interview, not in a suit and tie, but in a sweatpants and a thigh-length cast and crutches because I'd broken my leg playing soccer senior year. 
So I guess they didn't make the impression of the Princeton man that they wanted. And then, like I said, early admission, full ride UC Regent scholarship on the beach in La Jolla, California. It wasn't a tough choice, I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and you haven't left that area since then, right? No, that's right. So I've been in San Diego since uh, 1983. Along that way, how did you? Wh- where did you and how did you meet your wife? Uh, we met salsa dancing. So um, I, I was, I had a long-suffering girlfriend that taught me how to dance. She, she was mostly into two-step and country western and swing and stuff like that. You know, partner dancing. And then one day we're coming out of a country western place, and next door they're playing salsa. And I'm like, that sounds cool. And then so I started salsa dancing, and then she didn't really like that scene, and we ended up breaking up anyway. And But I found my music, and so I kept salsa dancing. At one point, I was going three, four nights a week. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, met a bunch of girlfriends, uh, turned over enough rocks, <laughs> kissed enough frogs, whatever analogy you want to use, and then met my wife. Um, first words I said to her was like, would you like to dance? First words she said to me after licking me up and down and seeing that I was a white boy, uh, I was like, do you know how to dance? <laughs> That's literally the first word she said to me. Well, did you at the time? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'd won some, uh, I'd, uh, I, I was pretty good. I'd won some amateur contests and yeah, I knew my way more. So, uh, I, I got digits that night. So I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I know we, I'm, I'm literally holding this new book, but I know just because I've known you for a while, books are not new to you. Let me backtrack a little bit. When I first opened this book, not really knowing it was, just knowing you, I thought, well, this is going to be like another marketing book. And yeah, guess, maybe neuromarketing right, or something. And right? I guess maybe you could you could read it that way if you want to, but that's not that's not really the point of this book, is it? Well, no. So um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The first two books I wrote were called Landing Page Optimization. They're still available. And between the two editions, they've sold like 50,000 copies, which for a marketing textbook for practitioners is like, it's a pretty much a bestseller. They've been translated into six languages and a lot of people have blamed me for their conversion rate optimization well, careers I, I as a result. It, I'm looking at it right now. It's literally on my bookshelf. So I'm not, I'm, I'm one of many marketers in the world that have it on their shelf. Right on. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, and, and um, it, it was written though as a kind of business to business book for marketing practitioners. And this book is not really for um, business or rather the purpose of me writing the book, I told you kind of the backstory, but the purpose is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the old uh, Cosmos book by Carl Sagan, right, the right. TV show. Yeah, the TV you know, show, like, sure. Yeah, and so he was like kind of like Neil deGrasse Tyson 1.0, the original guy, right? So you'd be like, billions and billions of stars, you know, that was, and he'd explain astrophysics to people in a way that made it fun and interesting, and I'm trying to do the same with psychology, evolutionary psychology. So it's a pretty ambitious book on one hand, but on the other hand, I tried to make it super readable. There's no footnotes, endnotes, no scientific you know, study cited. It's designed to be a straight read. Because yeah, I was, yeah. It certainly is because I've been re- obviously reading it to prep for our conversation here and it's uh, it really, it reads easy. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I hope that I, doesn't mean that as an insult, but it doesn't. No, no, no. That, that, that was a thank you, thank you very much, because that was my goal. I mean, I also designed it to be easy to translate, and I did an audio book that I recorded myself, so I narrated it. So I designed it to be a straight read through. You know, I mean, but there's no fluff in it. Like when I'm done with a chapter, 
and it might be half as long as the as the previous chapter, but when I'm done talking about something, I'm done. There's no filler in it. So in a way, it's kind of dense but accessible at the same time. Uh, there's a lot packed into it, but I hope to make it accessible to, to everyone. So it really has kind of three audiences. One would be business, everything from leadership to marketing, persuasion, sales, that sort of thing. Another would be relationships, if you want to understand culture, tribes, gender differences, intimate relationships. Um, and another would be personal development, everything from the neurochemistry of happiness to how you learn, how you remember, basically being human 101 is what I call it. So um, it's really for everyone, and it's just the why behind our psychology, the evolutionary why. Uh, there, there might be other books in the future that apply it to different things, but this is not applied to anything. This is just to understand the basic operating system that that uh, we're stuck with. There are parts of the books where it's almost uh, depressing, like uh, you realize, that, oh, wait, I don't have control of this. I don't have control of who I am or what I do because like, I just I feel like I'm almost stuck. Like This is just how I'm wired. I can't help it. Yeah, and, and I think that that's an important thing to understand, that uh, first of all, some of our wiring is fully automatic. I mean, it doesn't depend on learning or memory or anything like that. I mean, we've inherited a bunch of stuff from reptiles that if it moves and it's smaller than you, it's food. If it moves and it's bigger than you, run away. You know, I mean, like these kind of things are very, very primal, you know, um, and you can't change them. And sorry, that's, that's reality. And so this idea in, that we have in the West or especially the U.S., like, I'm a self-made person and I can be whatever I want. I can be president and I can, you know, uh, be a fighter pilot or whatever. And at the same time, in fact, and I can be a great parent too. No, you can't. And um, a lot of things go against type of your personality and a lot of things are just wired. So it's not in the sense a hopeful book. Uh, there's a lot in there that, like you say, that's like, yeah, we're stuck with this operating system and now we have to get by uh, but I think that's a recognition of reality, and that's what it means to be a grown-up. Uh, the goal is self-understanding, not necessarily like life is good, Tony Robbins crap. You talked a lot about sleep, and, 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 and I've heard it before, and we've all heard it that sleep's important. But I didn't realize, I guess, how important it is. Really a top priority. Compared to sleep, things. sleep is daily life support. Let me put it, uh, let me take you, tell you a couple of things that I mentioned in the book. There is no form of, of animal life, insect or animal life on this planet that doesn't have some form of sleep. Okay, it's that fundamental. And there's different kinds of sleep and I go into that as well and how it evolved and what makes human sleep particularly important. But the, the, here's another <laughs> stat for you with mental health issues. There is not one mental health condition that does not involve a sleep disturbance as part of the diagnosis. Yeah, it's that fundamental. It's daily life support. So people say, well, you know, diet and exercise and, you know, maybe get proper sleep, right? But most of us don't do that. In fact, it's sleep. Everything else depends on that. If you're not getting seven to nine hours of sleep, you are... Uh, basically destroying your brain. You're unable to learn both mental and physical skills. You wake up paranoid and unable to judge people's emotional reactions and you think they're out to get you and are, are much more aggressive. 
Uh, so there's all the you know, bad stuff happens, um, and you can't cheat it. You can't mask it with coffee, uh, by the way, which is not a stimulant. All it does is it kind of uh, binds to adenosine receptors in your brain, which mask your level of tiredness. You mentioned coffee, and um, so I started thinking of like other other vices. Like we all have the coffee, alcohol, other sh- stimulants, or or just sweets. And I, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have any of those things, but we all kind of all have our have our vices. Well, they're, they're not vices, and I feel like by calling them that, you put a judgment on it. Um, let, again, just stripping away all the cultural layers and BS, if you look at certain uh, brain chemicals, we have neurochemicals, call them happy chemicals or stress chemicals that we have in our brain, right? Um, they evolved for a particular reason. So things like dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, opioids, and the cannabinoids, all of those are naturally produced in our brain or other organs in the body when the brain signals them to produce them. Okay, so they're needed and they have survival value. So for example, just a couple of quick things like uh, cannabis, there are lots of and the cannabinoid receptors in a woman's reproductive system. And one of the things we know, you know, from kind of the jokes about stoners is they forget stuff, right? Well, here's the cool thing about, and, and the cannabinoids, they help women forget the pain of childbirth. Because if you had to push out an eight-pound bowling ball, it hurts, I imagine. I'm glad I don't have to experience it in my lifetime. But you wouldn't want to have another kid after that if you could remember it. So cannabis helps you forget, right? Or um, endorphins, they help you, you know, if, if the bear is charging after you and you're already in you, but you have a deep cut in your leg, you're still going to run like crazy and mask that temporary pain to survive. And then you can deal with your wound. So these things have survival value and they're naturally produced in the body. The problem starts when we start introducing them externally in much stronger quantities, right? You're recalibrating the brain. It's like smashing it with a sledgehammer. And after that, the brain's dysregulated and it can't function the same anymore. And so, you know, you have you have opioids in your body and you get some of them are released after an orgasm, say, but if you start doing fentanyl, you know, or some, yeah, it could kill you in one dose or something like that. It's a hundred times stronger. So uh, the point is doing artificial, externally um, kind of induced drugs is the problem because it rewires your brain permanently. And then you, you can't even enjoy normal levels of those neurochemicals in your body because you've trained it to expect much higher levels. So that's the path to addiction. A lot of bad things happen. I talk about that. I mean, we all know the general arc of it, but the point is try to avoid external um, drugs as much as possible. I'm, I'm reading this as I'm thinking this. We all kind of have our our tribes and, and we connect to these. You talk about all about stories. We connect to these stories that really connect with us the ones that we want to be with. And, and maybe it's just the stories that we like better because the other ones are the other religion over here. Those people across the street, man, they're crazy, but we, we, we got it figured out over here. We have a, we have a great story. And I guess, um, part of the question is that we just, I, I just, we just wired that way to have this. this well, well, let's, let's transition to, to culture and religion and tribes through language. So one of the chapters I have in the book is, uh, 
tell me a story. It's about the evolutionary functions of storytelling. So there's a couple of um, important things to understand about storytelling. One purpose is simulation. Okay, so we practice stuff just like in dreaming and REM sleep. We, you know, we often have nightmares. In fact, that's the primary thing. It's so when the bear's chasing you, your body is literally in a, in, in REM sleep, um, paralyzed. All the voluntary muscle movement is paralyzed so that you don't have the bear chase you off the cliff in real life like it is in the dream. I mean, some people sleepwalk, but that's relatively rare misfiring of that system. So, you know, in both sleep and storytelling, we're simulating things. I like to use the example of the movie Sophie's Choice uh, with Meryl Streep. I don't know if you're familiar, but she's in a Nazi concentration camp as a Jew, and she has to decide which of her children is going to live and which one's going to die. I mean, I hope none of us are ever in that situation, right? But it's a very powerful story, and by seeing it in a movie or hearing it from someone as a story, because the stories can take many forms, we're in effect simulating that without paying the very high price of whatever is going on in the story, the potential loss or consequences, right? So one function of stories is simulation, the other, and I'd say more important one, is actually uh, reinforcing our tribal or cultural beliefs. So stories reinforce the values of our tribe. And um, how we hear a story depends on our cultural values. In the book, I use the example of the matador. Let me tell you an objective story, right? The matador deftly steps a fraction of an inch out of the bull's path, waving his, his cape, and as the bull charges by, plunges his, his sword from above between its shoulder blades, hitting its heart and instantly killing it. And so that's a story that's factual, right? Now, if you're in Spain and you like bullfighting, you're, you're viewing that through the prism of the impeccable warrior, of man against powerful nature, of tradition, of uh, courage, you know, those kind of things. And if you're from the people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA, you're thinking, okay, that's animal torture, and it's being subsidized by the money that these clowns are paying to watch the animal torture as a public spectacle, right? So same story, but what you're going to bring to it is completely different based on your cultural package and your beliefs. So stories are there to reinforce our tribal beliefs and to improve group cohesion so we can more effectively function as a group. Because as humans, our advantage is not as individuals. We're slower, stupider, and and clumsier than, than most other animals our size. It's in our collective ability to get things done, and it's in culture spread. That's a huge part of it. So culture spread is reinforced by stories. Well, and that leads me perfect to that other topic that's hard to, that people don't like speaking of is, the, is politics, especially right now in this presidential election where, um, I mean, is it, is it going to come down to the, the person who tells the better story is going to win this, is going to win the ele- any election, whether it's a local election or a presidential election? Yeah, so so uh, when we apply this to the sphere of politics, that um, I'd say, again, think of it from the prism of we're culture spreaders. We made one big evolutionary bet on being able to learn stuff around us. So is in order to do that, we have to be willing to learn and mimic, which we are. We're like great imitators. Um, we have to figure out who to learn from, 
who to pay attention to. And usually that's, again, in terms of tribal reinforcement, co-ethnics, same gender, people speak the same dialect and language. This is across all cultures and ages, right? So again, it serves the purpose of reinforcing our local tribe. Uh, so, uh, and even once we've learned something, imagine it, how hard it'd be to learn from somebody who didn't want to teach you. Right, so there's another motivation which I call prestige, which actually makes want makes people want to give back, to pay it forward, to mentor, to teach others. So the only way not to break the chain of learning and cultural transmission is for people to want to learn and others to want to teach them. And so we're designed to both learn and to teach to spread this cultural knowledge, and it's so powerful that our cultural package will actually believe that instead of our own eyes and our own life direct experience, especially in times of uncertainty. We would rather fall back on the cultural beliefs of our tribe than see what's in front of our own eyes. And so if politicians can exploit this. They create uncertainty. They create discord. They create division. And then they're strongly activating the existing tribal knowledge, which they know what that looks like, the cultural artifacts and beliefs that you want to come out. Uh, so that's what's happening right now is there's a lot of instability in the world and, and the people that stoke division um, are doing it intentionally to activate certain behaviors in certain tribes. Well, and this is what I meant by depressing because <laughs> when we had this conversation and I, and I read this like, oh, I mean, but again, we're, we're, it's adult time, put on our big, big boy pants and we can't hide from, can't put our head in the sand. These are things that is going on. It's better to understand it than to not understand it. I do have to ask you though, cause we're in this, before we kind of run out of time here, cause we're in this, this quarantine slash pandemic world, uh, where we can't always get the social connections we need. Do you think that'll have an effect on us, on our, on our feeling, our emotions, our brain? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I mean, people are the most hypersocial of all mammals. Uh, our close groups that we maintain are 100 to 200 uh, people that we can have a personal deep knowledge of. And for us to isolate is the worst thing possible. I mean, the cruelest thing you can do, which I think we'll look back in history, is like um, in maximum security prisons where you're isolated 23 hours a day and then you're let out in your own individual cage to exercise outside. But the lights are on and there's no human contact other than the screams of other people. That's inhumane. And we all need social contact and close bonds and touch. Um, and not having that is, uh, you, you see this epidemic of uh, domestic abuse, of mental illness, of suicide. I have a couple of real depressed teens in the house right now. It's no picnic. Uh, it's, it's, it has very real effects on people. Being social is such a core part of our nature uh, that when we're isolated, we pay a very heavy price for it. Yeah, and uh, it's something, I mean, you have to watch out for, for all the warning signs. And, and even if it's virtual connection, so for example, I went through an initiation retreat about a year and a half ago through this wonderful group called the Mankind Project. Uh, it's worldwide, and it's basically how to show up as a more authentic man. I recommend it to any man, literally. Um, but, you know, we had these in San Diego, we have about 15 uh, ongoing groups that meet weekly to continue to do your personal growth work. And so I was meeting one of those. And of course, with the pandemic, we went to virtual. Now it sucks and it's 
it's not as good as the physical in-person meetings we have. Or, um, but, you know, it's 85%. You do get some social support. You can still do psychological work. You know, you can still support each other emotionally. So I think r- making the effort to reach out, just because you can't have physical touch, um, you can still make sure you call people or you talk to people or video call with people. Uh, it's not nearly as good, but it's better than isolating and binge watching another show. Yeah. Um, and to, t- to tie this back in the book, one of the uh, little uh, call outs that I had, I had a little bookmarked or paper clipped was uh, your section about empathy. I guess it's about empathy, but the quote was, um, or the pullout was when we see a close person in pain, we experience the pain as if it was happening to us. Um, yes, we're literally wired for that. So ho- hopefully, to kind of kind of bring it all full circle here, in this in this um, election season, when we see someone on the on the other side and try to connect with empathy and try to understand them a little more, because there's this feeling you just want to say, does this does this quote other side do they even care about people? Do they even have any empathy? Yeah. Anything? Well, you know, it's funny, it's funny you should say that because I don't talk about this in the book, but I ran across a really interesting study of, uh, I guess you'd call conservative in the, in the literal, you know, like, um, maintain the status quo versus progressive or more open to change kind of people. And, and so here's the observation. So if you think of, um, our sphere of concern as uh, concentric circles, you know, there's, there's us, there's our immediate family, there's our, you know, extended family and friends. There might be a synagogue or church or religious group, town, state, nation, right? You can go out to uh, all of humanity. Then some people go wider. It's like all life on earth and all sentient beings and out to the whole universe, right? And so what they found was that conservative people have a more local focus and tribe. Their center of gravity is more local, Whereas progressive people are more universal uh, in their concerns, right? So we can see the same event again, just like the story of the matador. And I could so the objective reality is people are, for example, being stopped at the border, separated from families, and small children are maintained in uh, chain link cages. Okay, now that's the objective story as I told it. So uh, a conservative, quote unquote, person, they're like, well. Okay, that's not happening in my town. They don't speak my language. They don't go to my church. They don't look like me. So that's outside of my sphere of concern. Whereas for a progressive person, they're like, this is basic human rights. How can we, you know, if this was your child and this was your family, you'd never put up with that or tolerate that. This is inhumane and and disgusting morally, right? And so... It just depends on how wide your sphere of concern is. So one of my antidotes for all of this is attach to wider and wider tribes. You know, it's like flexing a muscle or practicing any skill. You should um, go see other perspectives, not necessarily argue with people, but tell me why. That's a great question. Yeah. And I guess a good political strategist, and I'm I'm not that person clearly, would have a would have a way to connect that global to the local level. And convince someone that sees things that's locally. Right. The, the, that's right. That's right. To activate them. the val- local values by by this, uh, you know, uni- more universal event. You're exactly right. And there has to be a lot more attempt to make that happen if we're going to make keep the center from from uh, falling. 
Yeah, and on that note, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> More optimistic stuff from Tim Ash. So I, um, this has been good. I, I mean, we could probably literally talk about this forever, but um, it, the book is so – it's just chock full of so much good stuff. that we. I mean, we didn't even touch on so many things that are in here that we could easily just expand and expand on. So I definitely want to encourage people to go out there and, and get it. And then speaking of that, how how do they get it? What's the timeline? Where do you, where do you find it? That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, well, if, the, if people want to reach out to me about uh, keynote speaking or, or events or virtual keynotes or they or any of my digital marketing services from you know, expert website reviews to internet strategy or marketing training, uh, which I can do remotely. Uh, that's com. Pretty easy. If you want inter- information about the book, the book is out everywhere and worldwide uh, as an ebook, as an audio book, again, narrated by me, uh, which I try to make it entertaining. Um, and uh, the Australian New Zealand edition is out through Booktopia. So if you're in that part of the world. And the U.S. edition formally won't launch till April, so you can pre-order on Amazon and other places. But you can get autographed copies from me directly and information about all of this stuff is at primalbrain.com hey tim thank you so much for joining me today i'm glad we finally had a chance to have this conversation and listeners thank you for being a part of today's episode i encourage you to check out tim's latest book as tim mentioned you can find more details at primalbrain.com as always i appreciate you making this part of your podcast routine be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know these new episodes if you haven't yet, leave me a comment in Apple Podcasts or however you are listening. I'd love to hear from you. Reviews and stars, of course, are always helpful. As always, you can find the podcast on all the major channels. Join the discussion online. Let's talk about more marketing. You can find me on Twitter every day at John W. Ellis. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.